The episode you're about to hear explores whether you can leverage humor to drive social awareness and change. This was recorded weeks ago, and so before the horrific June 12th mass shooting in Orlando. Given that, the guests you're about to hear from couldn't and didn't speak to the mass shooting. But I wanted to add something now, Uh, so I'm recording this message. To our LGBTQ community and our Latinx community, we see you and hear you. We love you and support you, and we grieve with you. And we are shocked and full of rage with you, and we are left wanting to do something beyond cry and shake our fists at the heavens. And to our Muslim community, we see you and love you too. And we stand with you. We will not be turned against you and we will not be pitted against one another. And we will not respond to one act of hate with another. This episode features three diverse women, each of whom are using their online social platforms to try to spread love and respect and tangible social change. They're working on different calls to action, but they represent the very best that we all as social media users can be and the best that we can do with our platforms. That work continues for us all. So let's listen to the original episode we recorded weeks ago before the attack. And thank you very much for listening. This is Who She Knows, a podcast produced by She Knows Media. I'm your host, Elisa Camahort-Page, Chief Community Officer of She Knows Media. My first guest is Heather Gold. Heather is a geek comedian, law school refugee, and a blogger OG who performed stand-up at our very first blogger conference in 2005, and she is an all-around badass. So I'm super happy to have you here, Heather. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Lisa. I remember that day so clearly. I do, too. And now I get to feel like, yes, all these other people, like, Huffington, they're following in my footsteps. That's right. They're Johnny-come-latelys. You two can start an empire from a small Mexican restaurant where it's very loud and it doesn't matter. (laughs) Exactly. Great, wonderful things will happen there. Um, So we're talking about social change, and social causes are usually considered serious business. And I mean that in both the sense that, I mean, they're serious, but also it's a business thing now that a lot of companies realize they have to have social cause on their radar. They have corporate social responsibility departments and people in charge of it. And I'm wondering... why why you think humor can be an effective tool and why it's not used more often if it is an effective tool. Why it's not used corporately or just... Just in general. I don't think nonprofits really... I don't see a lot of them turn to humor. Do you? Maybe I'm wrong. Well, I mean, it's probably not uncommon for a nonprofit at a fundraiser to hire a comedian. Mm-hmm. That's probably not so uncommon, but that yeah. tells you something in terms of, well, when we get together, this will be fun for us. But is this the way to talk to other people? And it's not a serious skill set everybody has, so you'd kind of need to bring in people who could do it. But it's way more fun than doing it any other way. I mean, (laughs) especially because there's so many causes. Everyone's so overly inundated with information and on top of everything you have to pay attention to and worry about you're supposed to now focus on like should I be eating these grapes what are they doing to these grapes in Ecuador I this is this website okay can we uh use GoDaddy for domains now or whatever like there's always they hunt elephants like like your brains cross that's a thing that you know like music humor just kind of cuts through that stuff so either you like the thing or you don't plus it's so much more fun to make 
Mm. I mean, I do think that's so interesting. As we get flooded with more and more content, and there's definitely this this urge to inform, right? But to entertain with humor while getting a point across and and getting people to think about their actions, it's it's a hard line to cross. I or to it's also a how rope, I how guess. else are you going to get a point across? Because when people are communicating, as you know, in the business world, there's a sort of we formulate a message that makes us feel good, and then there's is anyone listening to us? Right. And if you really truly want to get real and address whether or not what you're saying someone is actually hearing, I think it's easier with humor than it is without it because who wants to be lectured to who wants another just piece of information and and there's an acknowledgement if something lands the same stuff doesn't work for everyone right right? because of that contextual issue and that's sort of my take on the obsessiveness over so-called pc issues with comedy like it's just context and who you're talking to but there's i think there's much more acknowledgement of someone else being there, not just I'm talking to hear myself talk. So can you think of an example in your own work where you feel like your comedy has had this underlying kind of let me push you towards social awareness and changing minds? Well, I like to push, for sure. And it depends on the context of the kind of thing I'm gigging at or working at. The example I can think of where I know I had the most intense impact, but this is, you know, I was, it was at a university that I was brought to and I spent a bunch of time at the school earlier in the day, so I was asked to go to a GSA kind of a group, a Gay Straight Alliance. Mm-hmm. Um, and almost nobody at that group was, like, they, care, they were intellectually debating political issues, but nobody, it was one person out of the closet. And then a couple of people quietly sort of let me know they were gay at a meal. I had the three of them, and then by the time I did the show at night... I was in this room, and this is a thing I like to do in, in kind of more performance spaces, and you can't always do this exact type thing in, a, in say, video. Like, you'd have to work it differently. But I was just decided I was going to not get off the stage till I, like, pushed some of them out of the closet. So I just really worked hard in the social space. I did all this interactive crowd work. I had 20 people to come out in an hour on a campus where only one person was out of the closet before. Wow. So that's the thing I'm maybe the proudest of because it was very tangible and very like because once you I could make the space where it could be the norm and more of a comfortable almost a cool thing to do also I was trying to hook them up with each other because I'm like you're 20 <laughs> and then once enough people started sort of being open about it then it was the norm in that room mm. right mm-hmm. so it became almost easier and then it was like oh maybe I think she's it's not just me and then oh maybe she's cute you know okay right so well, that's interesting because you talk. There's really two different kinds of impact when you're talking about trying to combine the the peanut butter and chocolate of humor and social awareness and change. On the one hand, on the humor, like you said, people laugh or they don't laugh. It's funny or it's not funny to that audience, right? And things can be differently funny to different people. Um, but this is this example you just used is really an example of you saw the impact from a social perspective immediately. right there immediately. So satisfying. But I, I would bet that's say. not usual. No, but it's my favorite one <laughs> <laughs> because it's so clear. Um, so after Prop 8 passed and I was uh, married in California um, and then Prop 8 passed, I was like, we weren't sure was I going to be divorced by this by the fact that people who live in the state I lived in thought I shouldn't have the right to be married. Kind of interesting. Horrible. Um, I performed, spoke at a rally in, in at Union Square. I was in New York then. And I kind of took, the take I took was about, um, 
you know, all the, just kind of, I comedically went through this long list of crap that we'd already dealt with just to be gay, you know, like your family and all this other stuff. And so like, what's a flipping proposition? Like, mm-hmm. it's not like your mom, you know, <laughs> telling you, you know, every day that they, they're praying for your soul. Like, it's nothing, you know, like you, you're like, that didn't stop you being gay. This isn't really gonna, you know. Right. And at least what I would say is that maybe it's more the feeling of, and maybe I hope you're not projecting, giving some hope to people or a sense of, because it was a pretty painful moment, you know, for a lot of queer folks to be like, oh my God, with that California is progressive and even California right. is popular. It's kind of like everyone hates you kind of a moment. It can be really easy before you're comfortable within yourself to take this as a, so I felt like I was at least, because I was able to come from a place of feeling funny about it and okay, I mean, it's pretty hard to feel okay and, it's hard to be fun, to laugh and feel completely crappy. I don't know, I mean, because when things, you know, feel crappy and happen at the moment, you know, it can be like, this will never change. And that's when people feel helpless and around social change, that's the key thing, right? Right. Is when you go to helplessness, then you're overloaded, who wants to do anything? How can I make any, the, the, the act of trying to make things be different is about movement and momentum and action and anything you're doing will always feel better and kind of give you the impetus to do more. Heather, thank you so much for joining us on Who She Knows. It's great fun to talk to you as always and great fun to have known you all these years as an OG. I love it. And Heather will be at Blog Her 16 this summer. Um, And she's talking not about this topic, but about how to keep your friends in a heated political season or when sometimes you just have to cull the herd, which uh, I think is an interesting topic as well. Thanks again, Heather. Thank you. My next guest is Jenny Yang. It actually was Jenny's idea for Blogger to have a panel using humor to raise social awareness and even catalyze social change. Jenny is a stand-up comedian and was recently dubbed one of L.A.'s most fascinating people by the L.A. Weekly. Jenny, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for bringing us that idea. I can't wait to talk to you about it. Thank you so much for having me. So what drove you to connect humor as a really effective tool to drive social change? Well, um, I'm actually new to comedy. I used to be a a political professional. I worked in the labor movement. And so that was going to be my life's work, you know, ever since I had to write a college essay. And so I burnt out of that job and that career. What I do primarily is my art and my comedy, and it comes from my personal experience. And it just so happens that my experience um, can be connected to political issues such as uh, race and ethnicity representation, being an immigrant, um, issues around being a woman. And so uh, just as an example. Right. And so um, I would say that, you know, for me, it's really more, you know, who I am just existing as an Asian American female comedian is in and of itself political because we are not usually represented on mainstream platforms. So tell me a little bit about where was the transition to actor and comedian? Was that something you had been doing before or was it a completely new uh, venture for you? I mean, you know, when you grow up a little immigrant girl from Taiwan, there's no real messages out in the world that says to me or you, if you are one, um, you should be a stand-up comedian, <laughs> no. right? I mean, no, no one says that to you. And um, for me, it was, you know, when I look back on it, I've always been a ham. I've always loved um, sort of expressing myself in front of others. 
I became a director, you know, I had a full-time job, well-paid. I was purchasing things for full price at anthropology, <laughs> you know, yelping my delicious foods. And, and I just felt like it wasn't exactly going to be the place that I was going to grow in anymore, you know? Mm. So I prepared to be self-employed and that's what I did. And actually one of the first things that I did, <laughs> one of the first things that I did when I was, uh, when I quit my job, um, was I attended a blog her conference. Oh, which year? Yeah, it was, uh, I forget, it was probably 2011. Oh, San Diego. 2010. Yeah, yeah San yeah. Diego. It Wow, you were so quick. You're like, 2011, mm, San Diego. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, Blog Her, actually, this is a very full circle experience for me because, wow. because you know, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a good student. I'll, I'll just say that. And anytime I wanted to approach something new, including doing stand-up comedy or, you know, anything else, I, you know, downloaded all of the information about being a self-employed freelancer. Um, you know, I knew I wanted to have a greater voice and, and do more creative work. I, I had already started to do stand-up comedy, but I was not at a point where I could be like, oh my God, I'm just going to pursue that full force. So I had had some savings, gave myself a year, a year and a half to like not be the lifelong recovering overachiever that I was. And right. it was the first time that I took a breath. And one of those things I did was regroup you know, um, relax and seek out resources. And blog her was one of those things. I always tell people, you know, if you save money now, like you know what your big idea is going to be because money buys doesn't buy happiness, but it buys you freedom to pursue. Yes. And oh, yes. Such a huge thing thing for me to tell people don't over leverage yourself don't spend money because then you'll be trapped and you'll need that big job and that big salary and um yeah so it's uh, freedom can you know really come in handy sometimes totally totally and th those three years is what i you know what i what i used to plan for that you know i lowered my household expenses so that i could not have to feel the pressure to you know bring in as much money every month right um and you know for the first couple years i was not making that much money but i was way happier i was way happier because oh, yeah. my expenses were lower yeah too, oh, it makes such you know? a difference so yeah. would you say that your your humor now as a comedian, you mentioned race and ethnicity and being an immigrant and all those things. I mean, is that a sort of constant undercurrent or do you just have a few choice uh, times that you bring that in? Yeah, I mean, when people think about something being political, their immediate thought is, oh, someone is preaching, you know, mm -hmm. someone is giving you their argument. I want to t tell a story or talk about my experience in a way that's fulfilling for me creatively. But by the way, it also happens to humanize me. It also happens to talk about an experience that maybe other people don't talk about, that maybe people may feel as taboo. You know, I talk about the fact that I grew up a good girl and, you know, to this day, I don't know the Mandarin Chinese word for sex. You know, and I get to talk about how, you know, sometimes Chinese immigrant parents, they could be, they could, they'll lie. They'll just straight up lie just to like control what you do, just to like <laughs> internally, ju mentally jujitsu, you know, how you should behave, you know, for the longest time, I thought uh, that I was born and I wasn't born from a womb that I was picked up from a dumpster. It was oh done with laughter in the car. I mean, you know what I mean? So... So it's like all of this stuff is ridiculous. And we, and, and, but you know, when I tell this to an audience, whether they're white or Asian or what have you, 
the Asian American folks, immigrant folks, they can relate. I mean, you know, who knows? Some uh, white folks could relate too. You know, yeah. like the the, the 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 idea is we can talk about ourselves and and highlight the kind of human stories that are you know that might be fraught, but we can find humor in it. And what that does is, to me, is very powerful and in in its own way revolutionary. I think humanity and art, in and of itself, can be political because of that. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I think you know when you talk about politics around, say, stereotypes of Asian Americans, you know, yeah. or lack of representation. Well, that what's what's the problem there? Or even mental health issues. So much of that is connected to not feeling whole or human. And to be able to, you know, for me, you know, for example, I I, I was very much in college. I supported uh, bringing Asian American studies or more Asian American studies to Swarthmore College, which is where I attended. Mm. And I took an Asian American history class. And it was so powerful for me just to take a class where I read a book that was just a general Asian American history book. It was very thin. But there was a segment in there that actually talked about Asian Americans from the South Bay of Los Angeles, which is where I grew up mm. in Torrance. And it was like this person knew all the people I grew up with. I remember, you know, we were only supposed to read three chapters, but I sat there on my knees on top of this old crappy dorm room carpet, you know, into into the evening reading this, this entire book with tears in my eyes because that was the first time that I ever read in, in print, in, in an authoritative voice, someone mirror back to me who I was as, as a person and my experience and give context to the experience I had as an immigrant, as someone who grew up with a lot of Japanese Americans and Korean American immigrants in, in the South Bay of Los Angeles. And so, uh, it was, it's powerful. Just being able to have your story told back yep. to you and mirrored back to you is powerful. Well, in the early days of blogging, that was, uh, I'll never forget at our first blogger conference in 2005, uh, Alice Bradley, who was a parenting blogger, she stood up during the closing session. We were just sort of doing a housekeeping, like what were your takeaways of this first conference? And she stood up and she said, I've really learned that mommy blogging is a radical act because we, oh, are, t- yes. we are telling our stories and we are not caring if anyone thinks they're interesting or cares. Like it's important to unveil the whole story of motherhood. The fact that we now have these avenues to tell our own stories without the gatekeepers um, yep. is is radical, and it's I always say it's literally rewriting history because different yeah. people are writing the history than wrote it you know a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago or three hundred years ago because we're writing our own. Um, totally. So it's so totally. important. Um, so do you? Do you look for the impact that you're having or is it the act of the storytelling in and of itself that is that's your impact? I mean, as an artist and as a, as a stand-up comedian, you're definitely receiving feedback all the time, yeah. whether it's, you know, the live event and you're getting people's laughter um, and also just talking to people afterwards. I get I get like random Facebook messages or tweets or, or direct messages. I find a lot of Asi- other Asian American women, other Ama- Asian Americans in general, uh, see me, you know, doing jokes, being obnoxious, sticking out my <laughs> belly, you know, talking about things that might be a little taboo. And they feel a kinship and they feel comfortable with me. And so sometimes I'll find either after a show or, you know, through whatever various social media, people feel like they can kind of like confess to me that they too wish that they could do something different, that they could do something creative, that they could pursue their creative passion and rather than do their day job. And I, it's almost like a confessional. Mm. And I, you know, I, and I hold those 
confessions very close to my heart because I've been there, you know, I, I, I was that person. Right. And so, and so to me, there is a spiritual ish, lowercase s, um, and psychological and mental health aspect. that's very healing about art and sharing and connecting that I feel like is un, not quantifiable. And luckily I'm not like a nonprofit where someone's giving me a grant and I have to give them metrics, you know, <laughs> right? because I know how that works, you know? Um, and, but to me, I'm trying to cultivate my, my craft so that I can connect with more people so I could, um, show more of my humanity. And that, ma- that's what matters to me now. Now that's in the sort of art side of it, of things. Now, as a person who's also a show producer, as an event producer. Um, I call myself an organizer because Mm. I see that my work, um, you know, if we are trying to, the people who are not typically um, given platforms on mainstream stages, like myself, like other folks, even before me, like Margaret Cho, they've had to kick down the doors. They've Mm -hmm. had to create their own paths, you know? And so, you know, I've been lucky enough to have had the ability of being like a lifelong student council president, knowing how to facilitate meetings, organize things, and have business skills that would lend itself to creating a space for me and others, right? And so that's why I started, um, you know, a disoriented comedy tour. I started last year. We also started a comedy festival in Los Angeles called the Comedy Comedy Festival, colon, a comedy festival that will feature (laughs) mostly Asian American people. And we named, for example, we named it the Comedy Comedy Festival, colon, a comedy festival is because we're like, wow, white folks all along have been naming their things and projects the most abstract universal language ever. Why do do we need to sort of call ourselves an Asian American comedy festival? Let's just use the most generic term. And by the way, feature mostly Asian Americans. And we'll have one show where it's called the Diversity, Diversity Showcase, and it'll just be straight white guys. And so <laughs> that's what we're doing. You know what I mean? And I so, love that. so in my own way, I consider myself a community organizer and that in and of itself is political because we're trying to push back to a mainstream narrative that says that we don't deserve to be heard. I completely agree. And that's why when people talk about um, spaces like blog her and, and talk about separatism and, you know, and question it. I'm like, well, you know, there's a difference between separatism and solidarity, but also when there has been no space to claim a space is important. And to say, you know what, this is, this is our space and we're going to do something with it. And when you, I've often said that, you know, it, it had to take till I started my own company where I worked in an environment where the leadership was all women you know, oh, yeah. and um, representation matters, you know, just like you, when you found that book, um, you know, just to see that, that you were seen and heard, it matters. Representation matters. Do, do you still do any outside your community organize, organizing as a comedian and with these shows and these productions? Do you still engage in any of the old style activism you were doing before? Oh, I haven't. I haven't done a phone bank or door knocked in a long time. So... <laughs> I think that's okay. Yes. Um, to me, it's all about how we define what's political again, you know? The the sort of, what we typically see as political, political campaigns, propositions, electoral politics, you know, I, I get that. And that's that's important, you know? Um, the, the closest thing that I've done was recently I did a Bernie Sanders uh, fundraising show. I mean, that's sort of what I did, you know? Yeah. But now that I'm a stand-up comedian, and I'm still trying to make everyone laugh. Don't, you know, don't don't try to get it twisted. Like, I'm trying to make everybody <laughs> laugh. But right. in my organizing work, my my show producing work, I know for a fact that the, the audience that I want to organize are Asian American audiences primarily because they need to show up and support, you know, all of these amazing people who want to 
be artists and comedians and storytellers, right? We don't go from zero to Mindy Kaling in like 60 seconds, you know, there's the developmental process. And so I'm very happy to have created shows and, and spaces that um, are, are places to workshop our work and to right. be a part of a process for uh, any number of Asian American comedic talent to, to grow and develop. And so that's really the role that I see. I organize Asian American audience and I organize fellow Asian American creatives and creatives of color and women. And so um, that, that is my work. Yeah, and I think that we've even seen in the last few years that even capital P political change doesn't always bring the culture and society with it. Exactly. Um, and that you exactly. actually need to move the culture and society too till yep. those things come together. And that's why, you know, I think it was Joe Biden who like famously said that he thought Will and Grace did as much for the fight for marriage equality as anything else because it it just brought culturally something. Now, I'm not sure all the activists who worked many long, hard years on uh, all of those issues totally appreciated that. Yeah. There's also, there are a lot of people who are never going to see that kind of political work, but are going to see what's happening in culture and uh, and in society at large, and that will have more impact on those folks. So you really need, I guess, both. And I feel like it's um it that what you're saying dovetails into sort of the current conversation around hashtag activism, <laughs> you know, sort of using that term as a pejorative, you know, yes, yes, like oh, you think you could just tweet something and things will change, you know, and, sometimes, and, and, and I, sometimes, sometimes, especially if it is also connected with people who've been building work on the ground, right? Yeah, and so that's that's what's powerful about that, you know. There's a there's um, you know, I, I was involved with a hashtag called, called not your Asian sidekick. I was one of the first oh, people. Yeah. yeah. I was one of the first, uh, the, one of the handful of people organized to sort of kick that off. And so we were tweeting it. It was like a holiday weekend or something mm-hmm. and we got it trending, which is beautiful. And it got so many people sharing their stories. Right. And, and, and it was actually a place where I was able to discover other like-minded people. You know, I was able to network with other amazing Asian American female artists. Yeah. To this day, I've built in real life relationships with people that I communicated through that hashtag. And so in and of itself, that's powerful. But, you know, that's also connected with the fact that, guess what? Asian American female creatives, we're doing the work. We're mm-hmm. actually creating things. We are creators. And then, and the, but beyond that, we you know with Black Lives Matter, you have to talk about Black Lives Matter. Yep. Black Lives Matter is not just a hashtag. It's actually uh, coined by, no, it's coined by, you know, and, and luckily they're getting more and more press, right? Alicia Garza, Patrice, like a, a bunch of on the ground organizers who've been organizing youth and black folks around the country. That's the only way that that kind of work can live. You know, you get a, you get, you shine a light on it through the hashtag, but you do the work in real life. Right. Well, Patrice and Opal, Opal Tometi, who's the third founder, they spoke at Blogger last year. Yes, that's um, right. And, you know, they just completely blew our audience away. And they made yep. very, very clear that, yes, it was formed almost in a moment. It was formed around a hashtag. But then they, who, by the way, they all have some organizing either that they're still doing or in their um, history. Um, So they knew how to turn that kind of online activism into foot soldiers across the country who are actually, they have tangible goals, tangible, um, a tangible platform, so to speak. Um, And that's why I think they're like one of the greatest examples recently of really turning that kind of activism into an ongoing movement. Yeah. 
and I think culture, I think culture work is a good way to put it. I don't think people see culture as work, you know, people see mm. it as entertainment. Right. Right. And so, you know, for if you can, you can legislate things, right. Uh, so many things, there's so many examples you can, you can bring forth legislation, but if, if the people culturally don't see a different world that right. we're trying to create, right. then it's, then it's not going to happen. Like for example, you know, just, you know, no matter what side you're on, a perfect example of this is in, in, what's happening in North Carolina. I was just right? thinking of that. Yeah. Right. You're trying to say people, legislation is trying to say, you need to feel very, you need to be okay with people using the bathrooms, right. That they, that they identify with and you need to be cool with it, but there is resistance, right? There's political and cultural resistance. And and honestly, the only way that that can be overcome other than actual political work is people to speak out and to, mm-hmm. for us to have a way to have a language around talking about these things. And it is work. Yes, it is. It is work. I had, I recently, just yesterday, I was having brunch with a family, um, actually my husband's family, and one of um, his relatives who's Latina herself, said that she loves to ask people where they're from and what their background is, and even if they're born here in America, like, you know, yeah. what their ethnicity is and all of that. And, and she doesn't get offended when someone asks her. And, and did I think that was bad? And I was like, well, I mean, do you ask white people that? Do it, Yeah. You know, because we're all from somewhere else in America. Oh, I do. Right? Um, she, I try not to because I don't like being asked that. Right, if, right. if it's the first thing that we've, we say when we meet. But, yeah. right. But, um, well, she kind of looked at me and said, well, I guess I don't, huh? <laughs> so if nothing yeah, else... Yeah, it's not just white folks. Yeah, it's yeah. not just white folks who might be like, where yeah. are you from? Where are you really from? You yeah, know, that's exactly. like a typical... Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, at least I think, you know, but like I, I think that just made her think. And yeah. who, who knows, maybe we'll get some slight change in perspective and that brings slight change in behavior and that yeah. kind of all becomes good. Yeah, so, Jenny, I could talk to you forever, but I will see you in, in August at Blocker 16. But uh, it has been such a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. Thank you so much, Elisa. It's been fun. My next guest is Lovey Ajayi. Lovey is a veteran blogger, digital strategist, and has her first book coming out this September entitled I'm Judging You, The Do Better Manual. Lovey is also speaking on the very topic we're about to discuss at our Blog Her 16 conference this August in Los Angeles. Lovey, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Lovey, we've been talking about using humor as a tool to raise social awareness and actually affect social change. Why do you think it can be so effective for that? I think humor is a great tool for social change because it's the great equalizer. You use humor to get to people's hearts and minds. You use it to kind of take down their walls. And while mm. their walls are down, you you reach them. So I think it's great to kind of pull people in by making them laugh. And while mm-hmm. they're laughing, teaching them something or at least giving them some information that they may not know. So you're saying we're in a weakened condition when we're laughing. (laughs) Yes. Yes, we are. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Um, So can you think of like uh, a specific example of how you leverage humor? I'm thinking about all the stuff you write that's really about society and culture and race and intersectionality. And you do it so often with a really humorous angle. How what's your thought process when you're deciding how I guess how funny to be? Um, I guess I don't really make a choice on like how funny I want to be. I really just kind of 
approach topics as if I'm speaking to one of my really good friends. Mm. So the conversations that we would have are basically what I'm writing. The thoughts in my head, like the mm. whatever type of angle I have are typically just the thoughts that pour from my head and how I would tackle it if I was just having a conversation with my friend at happy hour. You know, so pointing out all the oddities and all the side-eye worthy things. <laughs> it's just natural to me. So let me ask you this then, as your following and community and audience has grown over the last, especially the last couple of years, does it get harder to envision having that conversation with a friend? Because now your friends are like a much bigger, more diverse group than they might have been when you started out. Have you, Or do you still picture like just a couple of people or personalities that you really are thinking of? Um... I try not to think about the fact that my words are being written for hundreds of thousands of people. Mm -hmm. I really feel approach it as like that one person who I don't know who happens to know me, but might still be in my friendship circle. So I'm thinking I'm, I'm thinking like I'm at, I'm at happy hour. It just happens to be Mm -hmm. with (laughs) 500,000 people. As one does. (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, but on the other hand, okay, so now that's in your mind when you're creating. But do you ever stop and assess the reaction and outcome and and measure whether you've had the impact you were planning or thinking about? How do how do you do it on the other end, especially as you grow? How do you uh, how do you sort of become discerning about what really has the impact that you want? Um, I think it's important to kind of not take yourself too serious because if you come out the gate like this is going to be an impactful post, that's going to be <laughs> the one that's going to fall flat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's, and I think that's what people mean when they say I write for myself in that not taking yourself out of your content by thinking too hard about how it's going to land. I usually just kind of check in with myself like, did you speak your truth? Did you say it and you mean it? Did you say it in a way that wasn't hateful? You know, that's what I worry about more than Mm -hmm. anything is kind of like my intention going in and just being very straightforward about how it's going to land. It's going to come down to basically what the what the subject is. You know, there's you know, people are going to always disagree with me. That's never my my goal is never to be like, I want everybody to clap their hands and say, yes, I totally, totally agree with Levy. Um, My. My point is to always kind of speak my own truth mm-hmm. because that's all I can do. How it lands mm-hmm. is no longer my business after mm-hmm. that. So does that mean, but I know you are deep in your comments. You are deep in interacting with people. You're not one of those people that drops drops something and walks away. So there's got to be a certain amount of, um, you're aware of how it lands, but you're somehow are trying right. not to let it imp- affect your process. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm so I do care how it lands because I don't want people to think I'm coming from a place of like hate or a place of mm-hmm. ignorance. So how it lands does matter. However, mm-hmm. in my process, how it lands isn't my ma- major concern. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I might never write in the true <laughs> voice of my own because I'm too busy trying to make sure it lands right. So I do um, stick in my comments and have conversations with people but I also think that's why it's important to be able to stand in your words mm-hmm. because that's when it'll matter you know if it lands some type of way and it's the wrong way that it lands 
you still need to be able to defend what you said, mm-hmm. which is why I always have to ask myself, did you say it and did you mean it? Mm-hmm. If the answer is yes, I have to stand in it, no mm-hmm. matter how it lands. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was wondering, when you are writing, um, do, you, do you laugh as you're writing? Because I've been around some people who, when they're, when they're expl- you know, when they're analyzing humor and the writing of the humor, it's like the least humorous place on earth because it's super serious. <laughs> and and they're like intellectually analyzing the quality of the joke or the quality of the, the writing um, as opposed to just being an audience who laughs. Do you laugh when you write? I actually don't. Really? <laughs> no, I don't. You know what's funny is I sometimes... There are very few times when I read my own writing and laugh out loud. Huh. It's it's really, people ask me that all the time. And I'm just like, you know what's funny? I never really write and cackle as I'm writing <laughs> my stuff. <laughs> um, I, I always remember when um, Jenny Lawson, the blog guest, spoke on a panel about humor writing years ago at Blog Her. And she has a very stream of consciousness way of writing. And people assume that that's just the way the way her brain, like she just opens her mouth and things plop out that way. And she's like, you don't understand. I am editing and cleaning and honing. And it is very, very, um, a very serious process to put what she writes through that through her final filter to coming out and sounding like it's effortless and sounding like it's just the way she she talks when she opens her mouth. And my process is not as like deep, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> because I write like I like I talk. Uh-huh. I very rarely go back to do any type of like like ed- deep edits. Really? Like, if I edit, it's usually, like, grammatical stuff. But, mm-hmm. like, my process is more of, okay, I sit down. If it's a very complicated topic, I might outline. Otherwise, I just sit down and write. Let me ask you this, though. Do you, do you, are you thinking through, when you're, you know, let's say you're going to write your post about the Game of Thrones recap or, um, you know, I, I forget the the last one that you wrote that was really funny that was more socially, you know, more about society, but... Are you thinking it in your head so that by the time you sit down and type with your fingers, you've already kind of framed it in your mind? Sometimes, yeah. So I kind of sometimes I actually dream words or like I dream a post or huh. like if I'm on a flight and I know I'm supposed to be writing something, I'll take a nap on the flight. But while I'm taking a nap, I might be writing at the same time, which is kind of strange. That's a little <laughs> strange. Do you consider yourself an introvert? Sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'm like an undercover introvert. Oh, that's my hashtag. <laughs> Is it really? Undercover introvert. Yeah, I use it sometimes. No, because I learned this somewhat later in adulthood that, you know, their very typical de- definitions of introversion are about, you know, does being around people drain you or energize you? But um, someone else told me that one of the definitions is when you're going to write, for example, an extrovert will write a lot of drafts and they'll want to talk through, they'll want someone to be their sounding board and they'll want a lot of external, whether it's them creating external output of the draft or external interaction with someone whereas an introvert will just think it and think it and think it and think it until they're ready to write it and then it's pretty much like Athena out of Zeus's head and pretty much already wearing the armor Um, and I thought that is me I used to wait till the last minute to write every paper I ever wrote but it was already written in my head 
Yeah, that's super similar to me to where by the time it's like, okay, I'm sitting down, I've thought about it in the shower. I've thought about it while I was sleeping. Right. So then it's kind of like already has at least its bones Mm -hmm. in my head. So this whole other side of you that exists that's relevant to our topic of social change is that you're the founder and executive director of a nonprofit that's designed to raise uh, awareness about AIDS and HIV for women and girls called the Red Pump Project, which you've been doing for years now. Um, and that seven years. seven years. Wow. So um, and do you I don't perceive that with the Red Pump Project, you're particularly marrying that with some of the humor that you bring to your more social commentary um, so mm-hmm. do, do you agree? Do you, do you feel like you weave humor into what the Red Pump Project is doing? Not fully, not really, because mm-hmm. I, wa- I didn't want Red Pump to be the lovey show. Ah. You know, like I didn't want it to be defined by my voice. I didn't want it to be an organization that um, was so tied to me that it couldn't function without me or my voice. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, so it's basically, I operate it as its own very separate entity from the rest of the Lovey brand. However, because my name is attacked, I use some of my influence to help Red Pump sustain its work. Yep, that totally, totally makes sense. So I wanted, I wanted to circle back to like our core topic about humor and social change. Where do you think... Um, you're having the most impact and like, do you have a specific example of a topic that you have really dug in on but with a very humorous approach and you see the change? Um, probably from like on the race tip. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I mean with everything that's been happening with Black Lives Matter, with just the police brutality cases mm-hmm. and just being a black woman in this time where I feel like it's super tension filled right now. Um, I started writing more about race and issues that we face, that people who look like me face. And mm-hmm. you know, I've written a piece on like, cause I've, I have readers of all colors. And one day a white reader emailed me to tell me she felt like my posts were very us versus them. Mm. And I wrote about that, about how like I could be a proud black woman. That is not me being anti-white. And specifically that post, I got so many messages about, especially from my white readers, Mm. who said that my writing has actually made them change their politics and has made them change how they look at race. And it's given them perspective that's allowed them to see the space they take up in the world. And for me, that's the ultimate compliment, because in writing, I feel like ultimately writing gives us the access to change hearts and minds and to be able to do that. Um, is a privilege so it was like pretty major for me to hear that from multiple people no that's great I mean and that was what I was going to say I think that your work is a, it's delivering perhaps different fulfillment and and learning and, and appreciation to people coming at it from different angles but it always seems to me that it's pretty universal you know it's universally oriented that it's, you know, there's that whole conversation about this isn't for you or like when Lemonade came out, for example, that's not for you or that's not for you. But, but um, 
you know, I think uh, now now comes the shameless praising of my guest portion of the show. But I always feel like you're first of all, you write about such a diverse set of topics. You know, you're very uh, the fact that you're going to write about Game of Thrones and then police brutality and then digital strategy or whatever it is or just Jermaine Jackson's hair um, you know you're, you're covering a lot of ground which I think makes more people feel like you know there's something for me here this is this is for me you know Absolutely. You know, there's a conventional wisdom that the way that you make a big blog and you build a big audience, uh, a conventional wisdom is that you do it by having a niche and having a unique Mm -hmm. topic. And I've always countered that by saying that's one way to do it. But the other way to do it is to have a unique voice. And you could write about anything, but it is you writing about it. And Lovey, I use you as my example, just FYI. So um, whenever I'll take I'm, that. <laughs> whenever I'm talking about, you know, just be as creative and at start, you know, years ago we had Irma Bombeck and today we have you and we have the blog S and we have other people who have just as unique a voice no matter what you're talking about and including, I think, um, incorporating that voice into raising social awareness and, and making social change. So thank you again for joining me. It was really fun to talk to you today. Indeed, always good to share some space with you. That's it for this episode of Who She Knows, a She Knows Media podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Camahort-Page, Chief Community Officer at She Knows Media. Our next episode is all about how to talk with family and friends and engage in the social space when you have vehemently opposing political points of view, especially these days. Please tweet me at Elisa C or leave a message for us on the blogger or She Knows Facebook page. We want to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening.